Hello everyone, it's March 7th, 2023. Well, we finally have the details on what went wrong with Astro's Tropics 1 mission last year. Rocket engines are cool, but it's hard keeping them that way. Then we talked to Jeff Carter about his work on the DART mission, JWST, New Star, he's done it all. It's a big show, let's get to it, and lift off! And we've cleared the tower, welcome to episode 399 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. And boy, do we have a packed show for you. <laughs> We have an interview. We haven't had one in a while, maybe yeah. a couple of months now, right? Yep. So I guess this is a return to that. I won't say return to form. I don't know what that means, but as far <laughs> as our show goes, you know, do an interview every now and then. So I guess with that in mind, we'll just move right on to the news because uh, if not, it's going to be an, an even longer show than I already know it will be. <laughs> Tropics 1 mishap investigation. This is regarding the Tropics 1 mission mishap that happened back in, what was it, June of last year? June, Something like that. June 12th. So this was a while ago. And I have to say, the report, I guess you can call it, that we are drawing from for this is really good. Uh, we had talked about, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about, I think it was ABL Systems or ABL Space. Is it ABL Space? ABL Space? I think it's ABL Space. ABL Space Systems. Got to combine you two. Oh, well, oh it's both. <laughs> actually, it is. It's ABL Space Systems. Okay. The ABL Space Systems report that they did on their mishap we love that and it looks like they're they're setting a trend or something because I feel like this is a very concise explanation of what went wrong during the Tropics 1 mission and I just love it and so I read the whole thing and then Ben you wrote out every last detail and (laughs) did you want to set up what went wrong first because I don't know if people remember well yeah so the the thing is like it happened we knew it was an upper stage failure, but like that was kind of it. And at this point, uh, they've recovered at least some of the upper stage engine. And that's what a lot of their analysis, uh, drew from. I, I don't think they would have been able to figure this out without having actual parts pulled out of the ocean. They, they confirmed that there was nominal flight of the first stage, uh, nominal stage separation and nominal ignition of the upper stage engine. But then 18 seconds after ignition, the upper stage started consuming too much fuel and the fuel consumption stayed high for the rest of the flight. Um, and I think it's important to point out this is fuel, not propellant. They actually uh, exhausted uh, the fuel uh, supply at 250 seconds in, which left them with about 20% of their liquid oxygen still in the tank, uh, which means that they only put out 80% of the Delta V that they were expected to put out. Uh, and that's why they didn't make it to orbit. David, you, you mentioned like what we knew and it's kind of crazy. Cause like even that amount of information is more that than what we publicly knew. Uh, I, I don't, know if we didn't see everything but i certainly hadn't heard even that much just knew that the upper the upper stage failed so the the conclusion is is really kind of beautiful so basically what happened was the combustion chamber uh had a burn through in part of its wall uh and that was due to a quote substantial blockage of the fuel injector david you mentioned how nice it is to see this trend of of really good explanations of of what mishap investigations are turning up. And I I feel like this particular report is a little bit of a next step because after like the first couple of paragraphs, uh, (laughs) there is uh, a whole section that begins with the words, 
a quick primer on regenerative cooling, which yeah. I, I just <laughs> love this, right? I, I love the idea that maybe we are a little bit of a bellwether for the space fan community as a whole. Like maybe if, if we're stumbling over figuring out how something works, it means that other people will. And maybe companies see that and go, Oh, we need to explain a little bit more. And the fact that Astra, like, you know, put in a little bit of like a Wikipedia article in the middle of their mishap investigation report just delights me to no end. It's not like there aren't any journalists who can't do the same thing, but the problem mm -hmm. is, is that they don't because they have to write, you know, they have to write, I guess, for the general public or something. I'm not sure what it is, or they just want to yeah. have that kind of editorial flair or something, but this is just a nuts and bolts and this is what we want. And so it's good to see that because it seems that there's like no one else who's willing to do it. NASA space flight is right They're They're like the one news outlet where they will actually explain what's going on. Uh, instead of just saying words, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> totally agree with you. So the uh, the engine on the upper stage is the Ether, I believe it's the Ether One, and it uses uh, regenerative cooling. So they flow fuel, not oxidizer. They flow fuel into uh, like a ring that's about halfway down the nozzle, and then it flows up uh, around the nozzle through channels up into the into the, comb the combustion chamber walls until it makes it all the way around to the top of the combustion chamber where it's then injected into the combustion chamber along with uh, oxygen. So like those, those are a couple of things to keep in mind. It's unidirectional, right? They don't have loops that go up and down and back up or something crazy like that. Comes in uh, at the bottom and flows upward and then gets injected. Of course, um, regenerative cooling is a, a pretty common model um, it's a way to keep your engine from doing the thing that engines really want to do by default, which is explode, uh, melt to pieces and then just scatter themselves over as wide an area as possible. Like that, that's the default behavior of a rocket engine and all the rocket engineering that, that happens is to stop that from happening. Uh, so regenerative cooling is, is, you know, a, a, a pretty good way to do that. Yeah, Colin says rapidly disassemble themselves. Exactly. The the counterintuitive nature of this failure, though, is that a fuel blockage somehow led to fuel overconsumption. And so the, the chain of causality is actually pretty straightforward, and it, it isn't as counterintuitive once you think about it for a second. So uh, a blocked nozzle limits fuel flow. Uh, limited fuel flow limits cooling ability. Limited cooling results in the, the fuel boiling. In some cases, uh, the Astra article points out, uh, boiling can actually be a good thing, uh, sort of a self-healing situation because, uh, as the fuel is changing phase, it's able to soak up more energy. And so if you're just boiling a little bit, that actually allows a lower fuel flow rate to carry away more heat. Um, just because it's changing phase. Um, in this case, though, the fuel flow was too limited for that self-healing behavior to happen, and the fuel boiled too much. And so then that amount of boiling, instead of helping cooling a little bit, it greatly decreased the cooling capacity of the system. Um, so they, they had a couple of candidates for the root cause, um, they said it was relatively straightforward to determine that an injector blockage had occurred. My inference is that they, they mentioned something about being able to see it in flight data. So I think basically they're saying it was relatively straightforward because we saw uh, reduced fuel flow. 
like we see our flow sensors going down. We know that's a blockage. Uh, that that's easy. Okay, so they had three credible sources uh, for this blockage. Uh, one is FOD, foreign object debris. Uh, they mentioned particularly, or in particular, uh, metal metal particles. Um, I'm assuming uh, either a pump grinding or um, hopefully not uh, machining scraps left over like something from it not getting cleaned uh then there was also the possibility of gaseous helium causing a blockage and gaseous fuel causing a blockage so first they ruled out uh fod um, by looking at their data analysis and also doing some testing and they said okay that's that's easy to rule out then they looked at gaseous helium uh there are two sources of gaseous helium the first one they ruled out was uh helium from the pneumatic systems um the pneumatic systems are separate uh, they're like, they're not, you know, directly in line with the fuel flow, but there are a couple of places where, you know, potentially they could leak and, and cause an issue. So they, uh, tried to recreate the leak. Uh, they used a barrage of tests in quote. I like a barrage of tests. Um, they did these tests in flight conditions, um, replicating vacuum, vibration, low temperatures, and they, they couldn't replicate it. Uh, they looked at the data. They couldn't see any data that indicated pneumatic leaks. So I'm assuming, you know, the, the pressure uh, gauges in the pneumatic system, nothing. Okay, so let's go ahead and rule that one out. Uh, then potentially, this seems like a better potential, uh, helium from the, the pressurization system. So this upper stage is a pressure-fed system, so they're pumping uh, pressurized helium into the tank uh, to blow out the fuel. The major place where helium could have gotten into the fuel flow is uh, after the coast phase after separation. You know, you no longer have the gravity pulling the fuel to the bottom of the tank, um, so maybe some helium could have gotten uh, down to the outlet at that point. But if it did, uh, it wouldn't have stayed there long enough to cause you know the 18 second blockage that was required for this burn through to happen. Um, so I don't even. I don't even think they did any testing on this. They're just kind of like, okay, from first principles, we can say this isn't the case um, just because it, it would have had to have been such a sustained ingestion of helium. So, <clears throat> so at that point they get down to their, to their actual cause. It's, it's gaseous fuel. So now we get down to another uh, fun counterintuitive situation. Uh, the, <laughs> the gaseous fuel was caused by heating, right? So how can you have, gaseous fuel causing a blockage when the blockage is what caused the boiling fuel. There, there's something that we're missing here. Um, well, it, it kind of comes down to the test as you fly, fly as you test uh, paradigm. Uh, test as you fly, except when you can't. And in this case, um, you can't test an upper stage engine at the pressures that it's designed for, uh, unless you have like some crazy balloon setup. Like it, it just doesn't happen, right? Or you can have like a vacuum chamber. Yeah, with a rocket we, engine uh, in it. Stumble up? Didn't we stumble onto that about test stands that actually can simulate high altitude environments? Wait for for actual quote? sustained engine firing? Yeah, for like the H two. Yeah, so it's the Noshido Rocket Testing Center. Okay, well, this is one of those situations where I'm really glad that I said something stupid because that is so cool. Thank you. Well. Well, in any event, Astra did not have access to the Noshiro Testing Center in Japan. Um, so they, uh, they did their upper stage uh, engine tests at, you know, sea level air pressure, um, which resulted in overexpanded uh, separated combustion flow, uh, uh, exhaust flow. So rocket engines that are optimized for high altitudes have 
you know, really wide engine bells, really wide and long. And, um, it, it leads to efficiencies at those pressures. But when you're in a higher pressure, uh, regime, like sea level, um, you get this weird thing, uh, called separated flow, which is where the exhaust expands out inside of the engine bell and then equalizes its pressure with the, with the surrounding air and separates away from the edges of the engine bell and just flows in like this column out the middle. Um, there's going to be a photo in the show notes that actually really fantastically shows this to be the case. Um, but basically it's like you've got a smaller engine nozzle inside your bigger engine nozzle. What really sucks about this is that, uh, because the, the exhaust isn't touching the nozzle all the way down to the end, um, the, the ambient air is actually acting as an insulator, right? Like if you think about like the, the pink foam insulation that goes in your house, like this is basically it minus the foam. It's just the air sitting there. Um, and so that means that their fuel heating in tests was less than fuel heating would be in the upper atmosphere. Well, is that what led to this problem? Because I thought it was something else. I, I thought that they were just pointing this out to point out that, you know, in order to reproduce the flight environment, that they would have to compensate for that. But they knew that from the very beginning. It's just that uh, they didn't account for other things that you'll talk about in a second, here, I'm sure. No, but. here's the problem. They didn't account for it. Um, when they expected that this could be an issue, um, they were able to recreate the failure uh, by preheating their fuel in the test stand. Um, and that photo I talked about is actually from a successful uh, recreation of the issue. Um, and in this photo uh, from a, an engine on test stand, you can see the under expansion, but you can also see sparks flying out the back, uh, which are bits of engine, right? It's molten metal coming out the back. And they, they did that by preheating the fuel. Um, unfortunately, they didn't anticipate this ahead of time. Um, and they didn't realize how tiny their margins were, um, for, uh, heat capacity of this regenerative cooling system. So you're saying that like when they did the, during the engine development, they did not preheat the fuel? No, unfortunately not. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. And, and so I have very, very complicated feelings about this. On the one hand, it's, it's understandable. Like, you know, if you can't actually test the way you fly, you, you're kind of stuck. But on the other hand, this is a very fundamental part of rocketry and it really, really sucks. It really sucks to see an oversight like this happen. So, uh, they were able to recreate this on the test stand. Um, and the report says, quote, the, the most significant factors to this thin margin were unique to the rocket three architecture, which is a really fascinating insight. Uh, the, the bits of that architecture that are important here is that it's a pressure fed upper engine. Uh, it has low operation pressures because it's an upper engine and it has a kerosene like fuel. So instead of flying RP one, they picked a cheaper, uh, kerosene like, uh, petroleum product. Um, and it has a higher vapor pressure than RP one, which means it boils easier. And, and so all of those things eroded their, their margins for, for this exact thing happening, but they'd never happened before. And because these margins were so small, other small factors, uh, were able to stack on top of each other and add up to this sort of failure. They specifically cited the warm and sunny weather <laughs> at Cape Canaveral heating their fuel a little more than it normally would have been heated. Uh, bearing in mind, they, 
up to this point have only flown in Alaska, uh, which is a little bit cooler year round <laughs> than Florida. So, right. So the, this uh, counterintuitive nature of a cause causing its own effect or being its own effect, right? The, the fuel was just hotter than they expected. It, this isn't actually counterintuitive. Um, it, it was an engineering issue. Uh, they, they didn't realize how little it took to start boiling off fuel. The fuel boiled, caused a blockage, which caused more boiling. And it's just this vicious cycle that happens. Delta V in the chat, I, I have to read this. Uh, Delta V says, I enjoyed uh, the note that part of the difference likely comes down to the ambient temperature at the Cape versus Kodiak. Between this and Starliner, the Cape weather is racking up kills. And for real, the Cape is a great place to launch geographically. You got this nice big ocean, but boy, is it a nasty place to put anything uh, that has to be precise enough to go into space. The report also mentions a secondary factor, which is thermal barrier coating erosion. Uh, portions of the combustion chamber have a coating uh, to insulate the combustion chamber wall, reducing the amount of heat that the fuel needs to soak up in the first place. Um, when they recovered the engine, they found a small area was a small area of um, coating was missing in a location that they had originally considered an acceptable place to to be missing. But that was before they understood how narrow their margins were. Um, now that they understand that, it's pretty clear that the coating was also con one of those contributing factors along with the weather. I, I don't think it's clear how many of these factors you would have had to eliminate. Like, if the coating was okay, would this have happened? Well, you know, maybe... Or maybe not for this launch, but definitely in the long run, this would have happened. The other thing that contributes to my my complex emotions about this is once this happened, um, shortly thereafter, Astra said that they were uh, killing off Rocket 3. They weren't going to do um, the other uh, Tropics flight, and they were going to uh, go ahead and focus on Rocket 3. Um, and in my notes, I wrote, uh, burn through killed the Aether 1 star, because this this one issue uh, effectively kills the entire rocket, and they, they confirm that this is uh, directly responsible for shifting to Rocket 4. But, I mean, think about it. What, how do you solve this issue? If you want to increase fuel flow, you basically have to redesign the whole engine. If you want to switch to a different, uh, a different fuel, you basically have to redesign the whole engine. Um, I think the only thing you could really do is, like, slap some more ablative coating inside the engine, but that... It, it, is a little self-defeating. I mean, like if you're, <laughs> you're changing the, the properties of the engine and you're spending a bunch of extra money to, to retrofit an issue, like there, there's no good solution for a problem like this. Uh, th this one's really fundamental and, and it really sucks because it's I, I, like, I'm not an engineer. Like, I don't, I don't know what you do to fix this. You know, I can say that you need, um, you know, better design review or something like that, but like, Really, what happened is people designed the engine, and then somebody else went and tested the engine. And I have a nagging feeling that if the people who tested the engine turned around and told the design folks, hey, we saw uh, separation, uh, you know, the separated flow, um, and we just wanted to point that out because here are your numbers, but don't forget that these temperature numbers are lower than they actually would be. Or if somebody who had designed the engine had been there at the test and been watching the numbers and then they look up at the engine and they go, oh, there's separated flow happening. They would have been reminded, oh, right, we need to account for this. Like it, it feels like a communication issue more than an engineering issue. Um, what, what do you guys think? It, does, does that 
Do you think that there's a, a different way to look at this? I agree with your assessment, and that is something that they can try to fix that would carry on to Rocket 4, which in any event is what they wanted to do. So Yeah, I guess it's not so much... It, it, it did kill... I don't want to say it's not so much. It did kill Rocket 3, but it killed Rocket 3 sooner than it was going to be killed. Like It, yeah. could, have, <laughs> it could have gone out more uh, gracefully into the night and not dropped the tropics. Uh, payloads into the ocean forget the payload it could have gone quietly into the night without proving that it was a flawed engine right like that that's ultimately what this comes down to is that the engine was it was a flawed design and like that sucks so bad like they put so much time and energy into this and one oversight or or, you know many oversights that stacked up i don't i don't know what the case is but like this one issue means that the the whole design needs to be refactor like this is a huge thing to fix it's just at the margin of being capable of reaching orbit and that's why it had i think the weird track record that and like if if they would have started out flying from hawaii you know like like maybe this they would have seen this or you know like someplace hotter this this would have happened earlier this was a fail late um when they were trying to fail early like it really sucks Mm. But uh, Rocket 4, which right is 2024, they're anticipating the first launch for that, so we got to wait till next year. But hopefully uh, things will be fixed uh, by then. Uh, certainly these problems, uh, I can imagine the lessons are going to be learned from both the engine design as well as the processes. But yeah, so it'll have different engine um, for the upper stage. Uh, I don't think we have a name for that. Yeah, I don't think so. Engine yet. They got a new upper stage fuel with a hopefully uh, a boiling point that is more amenable to regenerative cooling. Yeah, I'm assuming RP1, which sucks because they were they were using kerosene for like cost purposes, I'm assuming. So it sucks that you wind up having to, to switch to something more expensive. Now, uh, even though, uh, Ben, when you're talking about some of the things they're able to rule out about what caused the blockage, um, you can still they could still introduce controls to reduce the risk of foreign object debris and helium ingestion. And so they are going to implement that for Rocket 4, uh, and particularly for the latter, have a, uh, the helium diffuser design upgraded to prevent frothing. Which is, so, Can you imagine uh, having helium bubbles in your, in, in your rocket propellant? Like, come on, that's the worst. <laughs> <laughs> frothing just makes me laugh. And, uh, and yeah, and then uh, uh, related to the non-hardware side side of things uh basically uh the way the they process uh, the the processing the systems uh and the culture uh behind um how they build and design the process uh, the, these rockets and obviously they had it sounds like they made some miscalculations for what their margins were um and also right there was a miscalculation earlier for one of the reason one of the ra- rockets didn't make it to orbit right where they basically had the wrong mixture ratio, if I remember correctly. So I have to imagine that could be traced probably back to their uh, mm. their systems uh, uh, approach to things. And so yeah, so the uh, the design review process will be overhauled. Um, they're going to have more robust tests like you fly qualification uh, uh, processes. Like as far as the test firing goes, that was an obvious example of where you had a a, a discrepancy between um, how you tested it and how the rocket actually performed on orbit uh, or on its way to orbit, its attempted orbit. And um, a refreshed set of core values, which uh, I think is a nice aspirational thing, but that's uh, a little more wishy-washy. Yeah, I tried to, I I tried to find them, but I, I couldn't. Because it's either wishy-washy or it's not, 
right? Like that's a good point. Yeah, I'm coming from my my college's. You know, has to have. You know, here's our value statement. Yeah. It's just like I agree. Value, yeah, core values <laughs> and value statements are usually pretty irrelevant, but there there are definitely some organizations that have them and stick to them. So I, I would kind of like to know which camp they're in. But yeah, right. So they kind of listed like all these lessons learned and like this the remediation steps that they're taking. A lot of mention of like culture, which I think is a good thing. But uh, I wanted to include a point that they mentioned um, that that I think is really important um, in helping us kind of form judgments about uh, the company's uh, attitude and and their likely success rate in the future. Right? Uh, I I own like two shares of Astra. Don't come at me. I don't I don't benefit from <laughs> trying to make them sound good. Like I'm, I'm genuinely, I think this is an important thing to include. So they, they discovered this failure mechanism pretty early on in their investigation. Uh, but they spent quote, several, uh, additional months trying to squeeze every drop of knowledge out of this failure. Um, and I, that's, that's really kind of an expected behavior for Astra, right? Like they intentionally went and flew rockets as quickly as they could because the best, like testing, like the, the best battleground, is the actual one that you're going to fight on. Like the best way to test a rocket is to actually fly it. That's the ultimate uh, test is you fly, fly what you test. But yeah, so they, they really took a lot of time and it, it really sucked when this first happened to just watch the company go silent and then to say, actually, we're going to be quiet for a little longer because we're going to go straight into, uh, into rocket four. Um, but they were doing that for a reason. Um, they, they were learning from their failure. And kind of precipitating this is that they received a formal closure letter from the FAA. Yeah. Which is why they published uh, this. Concluding the mishap yeah. investigation. So, yeah. Mm. So, that's why this is news specifically now. Well, Astra, it, we're glad that you're figuring it out. Uh, this, this really sucks. Like, there was a moment when I was reading this when I realized how the fuel was heated to the point where it was. And I just, I, I swear I got depressed. I was just like, oh no, oh no. Mm -hmm. Like anything else, not this, not an oversight like this. This sucks so bad. Okay, so let's just do two short and sweets this week. It seems that we're mixing it up every other week now. Variety. Yeah. First up, HST impacted by satellite trails. While the significant increase of satellites in LEO has plagued ground-based astronomy for years now by contaminating exposures, a study in Nature presented the first measurements of their impact on the Hubble Space Telescope. Using the Citizen Science Project AsteroidHunter.org and a deep learning algorithm, the authors scanned HST images taken between 2002 and 2021, finding a level of contamination increasing from a couple percent to about 5% by 2021, depending on the instrument, exposure time, and filter. While boosting HST might alleviate its particular problem, given that ground-based telescopes are complementary to orbital ones and cannot be replaced by them, astronomers and other stakeholders continue to look for a broader solution to Starlink's harming ground-based astronomy. Next up, China's secret spacewalk. Shenzhou 15 Taikonauts aboard Tiangong recently conducted their second EVA. Unlike the first, however, there was no advanced indication that the activity was going to take place. So far, only a photograph of the spacewalk has been provided by Chinese media with no further details. It's unclear why China's Human Spaceflight Agency provided no information on the upcoming spacewalk, but the decision is being viewed by NASA and other agencies as a hindrance for any possible future cooperation with China in spaceflight. segment today we have donald jeff carter pe jeff is 
uh, a prolific engineer, uh, but he reached out specifically to mention that he had worked on the hexapod actuators on JWST, as well as the Dart solar rays or uh, the the Rosa solar rays on the Dart spacecraft. And those two things, if that was the only thing he had ever done, would have totally endeared uh, Jeff to me and made me fascinated uh, in his work. And then I went and did some extra research and found all the amazing things that he's done. And it's th- this is going to be such a great conversation. So welcome, Jeff. How's it going? Oh, great. Thanks. I didn't uh, didn't realize you had done a bunch of research, but I'm uh, hopefully going to be enlightened here. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with you. Who like how did you get to where you are? What defines you as a person and what defines your work? Well, good question. Well, I'm very happy to be here. So, so thanks for you know having me on the show. I appreciate that. Um, and if I had known that the uh, the actuators and the DART program were all I needed to do in my career, I'd be done already. So that would be pretty fun. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm a long ways to go. No, I uh, I actually went to school in Fresno. I graduated Fresno State in '96, um, and then I went to a couple summers. Well, about three years ago, I went to uh, MIT and took their certificate program for um, precision machine design and that was like amazing it was so much fun as there it was like a candy store pretty much you learn a ton mm. they put you in the machine shop you get to make things and so i've just been loving engineering i guess <laughs> been doing this mm-hmm. for i've uh, been doing consulting actually for about uh, 22 years now um, all my all my space stuff is a as a consultant yeah so you you really jump around all over the place, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I used to do like consulting for agriculture when I first started out in the early or late 90s, early 2000s. And then I moved down to um, Santa Barbara area in uh, around 2001. And I started working for um, Able Engineering. Um, I think that was roughly mm. 2002. And they were pioneering um, coilable masts and telescoping booms and things like that. So my first real project in the space industry was a building a, or designing and building a telescoping boom um, out of carbon fiber that was like fully had, had full rigidity and stiffness when it was deployed. And so we come up with these custom latches that were also retractable that no one had done that before. So that was kind of fun. After that uh, worked with ATK space, worked with another, uh, number of other companies too, doing, you know, as a consultant, you're kind of drawn to different areas, um, whether you like it or not. Um, I've done stuff in the automotive, agriculture, space industry. I've done toys, actually. I did a, a Darth mm-hmm. Vader arm that was with, um, mm-hmm. uh, it was a toy arm. It was all fully mechanical and it was designed to be a inspirational thing for kids where they get this kit and they put it together and there's gears and pulleys and there was no motors, but it was all mechanical uh, erector set, basically. And that was, um, that actually got toy, uh, toy of the year one year. So that was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, it's, you can, I, I found it at Walmart for like 30 bucks. <laughs> yeah. And are they still selling those things? I, I think so. I don't know if they're still making them, but I, yeah. Walmart at least has one like listed from like a third party. Yeah. And like, I've got, I've got like a BB-8 style uh droid toy sitting on the ground next to my desk right now and like i i don't have any more room for toys uh in my life uh as much as i want them and i really want this this arm it looks really cool yeah it was a fun project so like how 
how does consulting work for you? Like most of the people that we talk to work for a company. Um, and so they, you know, they do whatever the company's doing, but at, at what point do companies decide to pull in a consultant and how long do you work on a project before moving on? That's a really good question. Um, I've been doing consulting for a very long time. I did work for a consulting company for about 10 years and they are the ones that got me into, um, the space industry. And when I was uh, laid off at one time, I decided to go on my own as a consultant. And luckily enough, I had um, good rapport with the, the customers that we already had. And they kept me on and kept me working. And so I've been an independent consultant um, for, gosh, 10 years now, I think. It's a weird situation because I don't advertise. I don't go searching for work. But they have managed to keep me busy Um actually worked as a consultant for deployable space systems for 11 years um, before they got bought out by Redwire. What sucks you into a project? Like, how, how do you get hired as a consultant? I guess it depends on, on what you're interested in because, you you know, you, you look for stuff that you want to do, really. My career path is a little bit different than, like, a traditional consultant because I really haven't had to look for too much work. Um, the people that I've worked with in the past called me back and um, just keep me keep me busy pretty much. So a normal consultant, you would be looking at, you know, you're beating the streets and knocking on doors and trying to find um, some, you know, a company that's your skills would work at. I, I guess my question is why, why wouldn't, why wouldn't they hire someone? Why, why so, would they prefer to, to bring in a consultant? It depends. Some companies their business model works better with consultants, like deployable space systems. It was never brought up to, go on board full time, even though I was a full time consultant, basically. I think their business model dictated that they didn't have too many consultants on board. And they had, you know, they were trying to balance out full time employees and consultants that they could um, basically turn on and off whenever they needed to, right? So you don't have to, like with a consultant, you're not paying the benefits and you're not, you don't have all the overhead that you do with an employee. And if, you know, a project goes south, which sometimes they do in the space industry, things get canceled all the time, then they can just say, you know, well, we'll see in a month or two or, or whatever. It's it's a little bit different lifestyle. Um, I wouldn't recommend it for everybody, but I enjoy it because I get to do a lot of different things um, all the time. I'm not always, you know, stuck in the same building, the same actuator all the time or, you know, things like that. Yeah. It's a big variety, which is really nice. Jeff, you brought up two things that I thought were interesting. and wanted to ask you because yeah considering your your novel career path and uh selecting projects that you're interested in uh did you consider yourself a space geek before you started working as a consultant for uh, a space company uh no like one of my biggest projects when i first started consulting was making the cheese machine so and that was <laughs> what is the cheese machine <laughs> It was actually is actually like super interesting, and I was super intrigued. And this cheese machine um, was for a company uh, in the valley, and it, it basically took liquid cheese and turned it into ribbons and froze it. And it would uh, there we had a cutter at the other end that would like slice it up. So the machine itself was was huge. It was um, 180 feet long and it was 13 feet wide. It was all stainless steel. There was no fasteners. It was quite the machine. And then it would go through these cycles where you have to clean it because, you know, it's a food grade situation. So they would, um, we had to plumb it with all this uh, 
I wasn't, it was like a caustic acid basically. And so when they were done with a cheese run, basically they would turn on these sprayers and clean the inside of the machine and it would get up to, I want to say like a hundred degrees or hundred degrees Celsius, or it was really, really hot. And so the whole machine would actually grow like six inches and shrink like six inches during the cycle. It was just so long. And then at the end of that, we, um, we, we made a cheese cutter. <laughs> it was pretty funny, but that was, uh, so no, it's not, it's not all been, it's not all been space related stuff for consulting. I didn't get into that until probably well into my consulting career, maybe seven or eight years after starting consulting. But yeah, I'm, I'm definitely a space nerd. <laughs> the, the reason that I like to ask questions about people's history is just because, um, we often have, uh, especially high schoolers asking us how to get into the space industry. Mm. Um, and like the answer is they're, they're like a million different ways. Like, <laughs> what yeah. do you want to do? Like, like, and, um, so I wonder if you had any advice for somebody who was intending to get into space and is, you know, maybe a high schooler or, or a college student. Like, how, how do they pick what they want to study in school and how do they direct their career? In, in, into space. The idea of what you want to do for a career is something you're going to be happy with. So if you're happy, you know, designing mechanisms or things like that, then you're, you know, you're going to want to take those kind of classes. And you tend to do that anyway. You take what's interesting for you. Mm -hmm. But the, I think the key to getting into the space industry, and it didn't work for me, but I think for like other other people or students, would be getting internships. You know, you're going to work for free for a couple of summers, but if you can find a, a company that's taking internships, then that's probably the best way to go. At, um, at DSS, we had some interns come on board, and they came from UCSB mostly, but some from actually Colorado. I guess they were, you know, really lucky to get in the door. Number one, because you have a lot of applications, but they've uh, all, almost all of them, have converted to full time after they graduated. I think that's probably the best way to get it, like into the industry. Maybe attend conventions, things like that, kind of get to know. You know, some people in the industry, which would be super helpful. Or just stumble into it, apparently. That was me. I just <laughs> fell right into it. <laughs> in the chat right now, we have a guy named Zach. Uh, he runs uh, a YouTube channel called Breaking Taps. And uh, sometime last year, uh, I was doing a series of like deep dives into all the different mechanisms on JWST. As it's going through its deployment, every time I would hit a new deployment step, I would uh, go and find as much information as I could and talk about the mechanisms that allowed that deployment step to happen. And the, the one mechanism that really, really stuck with me was the hexapod actuators. Um, and so Zach, uh, who's in the chat right now heard that episode. And at the end of it, I said, can someone please, please, please go make a 3D printed version of this mechanism? Because it's so fascinating. Um, I, I think we need to be able to print one ourselves. And, uh, Zach totally went and did it. Um, and it's a, a, a fantastic, like, homage of a 3D print. It's, it's really cool. Um, so what was your involvement, uh, with that hexapod actuator? Yeah. So I was, uh, actually consulting with ATK at the time and Ball Aerospace came and they, they were looking for bids for, you know, companies to build this actuator for them. This was like in 2006 or something. And so they, they won the contract and we ended up, 
we had that class 100,000 clean room and it wasn't good enough for these actuators. They're very, very particular and they wanted to be down to like class 10,000. So we ended up building a clean room inside of the clean room. And um, my involvement was basically um, making some test equipment to test the actuators for stiffness and strength and things like that. They came out and they gave us a model of the, uh, the entire actuator, which was really cool. And I was really perplexed at the time because I wasn't I wasn't really into like flexures and things. It was kind of my introduction to flexures. I was very intrigued by the whole design. And it's it's very odd that the whole actuator like moves up and down, motor included. You, I mean, no, normally if you if you design an actuator from a, from scratch, you like motors fixed at the base and you have all the stuff is fixed. But in this actuator, everything is pretty much moving. It's 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 really really cool to. You know, watch this thing get put together piece by piece and watch the flexures move, things like that. So, yeah, it was uh, it, it took a lot for my little brain back then to, to wrap my head around how everything was working because um, there was like so much going on with this thing. Yeah. We talk about things in terms of like, you know, the basic machines, uh, ramps and levers and whatnot. And like, this is a, a smorgasbord. Like oh, it's yeah. got everything in it. It's, yeah, isn't it great? So, so like what, what, when you said you were handed a model where you, was that like an engineering model or was that like a digital model to help you get ready to, to build? Oh, it was a, yeah, it was a CAD model. It was in pro engineer at the time, I think before okay. Creo. So we had like, we had everything because we were going to build this from scratch. We had the model, we had all the drawings, we had, the stepper motor requirements, um, absolutely everything for this uh, little actuator. So, so, did you start building your your test equipment uh, while they were still manufacturing the things? Yeah, yeah. So we we just started designing around the model for test equipment and how we're going to test the stiffness and and what we're going to use, um, you know, to control the motor and things like that. But yeah, we we started doing that well before the parts were actually made. What were your testing requirements like? I know you're saying stiffness and whatnot, but like, how do you how do you actually define stiffness in this case? I guess. So, like on this one, it was it wasn't that hard because all we were trying to do is test where the actuator interfaces with the mirror. So we basically had this aluminum bar, um, and we attached that to the top of the the flexure, and then we would load it up a different. Um, load levels on either end and and watch the the deflection versus force curve mm -hmm. and then we you know you let it go and then you have a little hysteresis that goes back and forth but i don't think this mechanism had really any hysteresis in that in that uh flexure it was really amazing so you weren't testing like the the whole assembly at that point you're just looking at the the flexure and the the ball screw part of it or just the flexure? No, we were, we were testing it, the completed assembly. So you want to, you want to get like the whole stiffness okay. for the system as a whole, because that's what, how it's going to be right. used. Right. So the ball screw was in there, all the gears. I mean, it was, you know, a complete actuator assembly. It was like mount to mount, basically. mount to mount. Right. And that's exactly what you want to test. Wow. I don't remember what the requirements were, but they were really, really tight. Yeah. It was, it was really strange to see, like, you know, and I was I was very new to flexures at the time. I didn't really have a lot of um, involvement with them until this project. But to see this little this little cam like barely going up and down and getting all this other motion out of um, the flexure and it's and there's no no joints or hinges. It's all just, you know, machine titanium and it's just it's flexing and it's like super stiff. So you have like zero dead band in there. It was it was great. So what did it feel like to actually watch this thing move? 
Like we, we've talked a lot about the design and everything, but like when you're standing in the room with it, I mean, presumably behind like a face shield and everything. <laughs> um, but like you, you could actually see it, see it move when you're doing the fine adjustment mode, huh? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was interesting. We had a laser tracker attached to it so you could, you know, watch the tenths of an inch that it was moving or whatever. But it was like, um, it's kind of like watching a Rube Goldberg mechanism. Yeah. There's like so much going on and you have to watch, I mean, you can't just, watch it one time you have to watch it like 10 times to like really get the full appreciation of how this thing is working i mean ball ball, ball aerospace did a, <clears throat> an amazing job on this actuator truly to do all this in one stepper motor all this um you know you get this rough adjustment and this super fine adjustment it was brilliant just absolutely brilliant yeah i think i think it's one of like the defining mechanisms of human space flight like it really is incredible yeah and then you're like you get the you know, hold this little flexor in your hand before they and for the text install it, and it's like, okay, well, this is going to go on this hexapod mm-hmm. platform for James Webb Space Telescope, and it's like it was it was really cool. Like you know, you just knew that history was in the making right there. Did you design the the actual testing process, or or just the the mount and everything that it that it goes? Yeah, in? just just the testing equipment that was. Um, interfacing okay. with the actuators yeah so you you get a list of like here are the different procedures we need to step through uh, make sure that your mount you know meets these these requirements yeah ball gave us a very a very nice specification of what they wanted tested and what the what that had to meet and so we just developed some test equipment to interface with it that would meet those specifications or test to those specifications and then i don't think we had any actuators that, that fell out though i think they all passed I don't remember any failures. So obviously this whole mechanism is a very surprising kind of thing. Um, but once you had wrapped your head around the mechanism and you're actually designing your, your test setup, was there anything that surprised you? Any mistakes that you made that, that you went, oh, wait, I forgot this is the way this worked? Or was it a pretty straightforward uh, design and build? No, it's actually very straightforward. Um, it wasn't, I mean, it's not, it's not a complicated design if you, if you like break it down. But once you like, put it all together and trying to wrap your head around it as an assembly. It's like, well, you know, what's really going on here. But when you break it down to like little sections or pieces, it's not, it's not that complicated. The key is that little disc or clutch thing that they have in there for the fine motion. That was brilliant to throw that in like that. I'm, I'm kind of surprised that that's what they wound up going with because it seems like, it seems like a mechanism there would be a heck of a lot of slop in. I don't think there's a lot of slop in the actual mechanism itself, but there's, Obviously, there's a lot of rotation in the motor without motion that can happen. It didn't seem like it was anything was very sloppy, though. No, no, no. I, and I'm sure it wasn't. It's just like, to my mind, like if I was trying to design a clutch to do this thing, I, I would assume that it'd have to be so much more complicated than just pins moving around in a circle. Right. I, and I think that's the beauty of it, though. It's it's so simple to be able to mm-hmm. do what they're doing. And I think I think, you know, a lot of times we tend to overcomplicate things. And I would have, I would, I don't think I would have taken that approach either. I probably would have done something way more complicated. And then after you fully understand, it's like when you go through a design and you make something really complicated and then you have all these revelations <laughs> and then you come back and like, oh, this is all I really need to do is this little disc set up with two pins. <laughs> I don't need all these seven other parts, like overcomplicate it and then simplify it later. But that's the process of design, I think. Yeah. Uh, so if this was your introduction of flexures, have you, uh, have you used, uh, flexures in any other projects that you've worked on i tried to use them in um the new star space telescope i did the adjuster mechanism for that and that was also a very fine 
adjustment mechanism. It only moved, I think, 15 thousandths total in like the wide travel, like vertical travel. And so it had a cam just like, just like the JWST did. And instead of hinges, I was going to use these titanium flexures, but somebody didn't like my, my concepts. <laughs> we ended up just doing hinges that were <laughs> preloaded, but, <laughs> but I wanted to, I really, really wanted to. So I, I love New Star. Let me, let me real quick talk about this. So New Star, it, it, X-ray telescope, right? Yeah. Okay. And, and so like it's got this long old boom because the focal length is some ridiculous number that's measured in meters. Yeah. Um, which, you know, Chandra and XMM Newton both had a similar focal length, but both of those vehicles though got to launch on a much larger vehicle. They had the, they had the luxury of launching mm. on a larger vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, uh, for New Star, it has to be crammed in this tiny little space, uh, inside of, I think a Pegasus maybe. And so there's this, this, trust that has to expand to to get the two ends of the telescope apart from each other yeah and the the truss we talked about the mechanism on another show it's it's really cool it's a square truss and each section kind of just rotates down so the vertical um the vertical members can go diagonal and lay flat um and once you've got this long old truss deployed you still are going to have a lot of slop so they uh included some uh laser metrology equipment to characterize the actual shape of uh, of the telescope as it you know warped um and then there was the alignment mechanism which you made or which you worked on that uh was at the top of the mast and it it aligned the optics bench so i think in tip tilt and rotation yep. uh to keep the bench the basically the lasers aligned with the the detectors at at the other end, I guess. Or... Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So your mechanism isn't there to uh, necessarily align the telescope. It's there to measure the misalignment so they can do uh, the alignment, I think, digitally. And I, I love that you basically have uh, a target that you're trying to hit so that computers can do the rest of the job. That was the Atomass that was also built at ATK. So we did the we did the mast and the adjustment mechanism for that program and i don't I got, you've obviously seen the atomaster you know the the truss um that gets built out of the canister but that's a an amazing design too but the adjustment mechanism yeah it was with that distance from the focal plane to the um focal bench was like 30 feet i think and so even if you're moving like the optics because the adjuster was at the end where the optics are so if you're only moving that like 15 thousandths of an inch you have like three inches of travel for that laser to hit the mm. receiver at the other end but the interesting thing was, well, one of the interesting things was when they commissioned us to do this adjustment mechanism, they said it was only, they would get it on orbit and they would only want to adjust it one time and it would be done. And it, it turns out after they got on orbit, they adjusted every, I think every orbit, which is kind of a kind of crazy because we didn't actually design it to have that much adjust, I mean, to be used that often. It was a, <laughs> it was a little weird. Uh, we, instead of using like some bearings, we put in like these really like these thin dense corroded, um, thin dense chrome plated bushings and things like that, that are good for a minimal life, but not good for infinite life. It was, we had to go back and, and do a bunch of math and figure out how many cycles that we would probably get on this adjustment mechanism. And it turned out it was going to last a long time. Apparently it's still working. So that's good. <laughs> so what exactly, why did it need to be readjusted every orbit? Was that just because of heating causing expansion or something like? Yeah. I, I, cause it's, it's, 
you're you're getting into the sun and you got part of the mast heating up so if if part of it's heating up and part of it's not heating up if there's any shadowing then it changes like the length on either side and so you'll you'll need to do you need to adjust it then and that actually became i wouldn't say a problem but it became a parameter more or less that uh we didn't count on them in the beginning yeah we we thought it was just going to be like a one-time use thing and ended up being used like every orbit so Hopefully it's still doing good. <laughs> and I was also wondering, the deployable mast, was that mechanism, you said that it was designed for that mission, but was that like a completely novel design? Because it seems like something that has existed for like a long time, but just maybe not put to this use. Oh, no, it's existed for a long time. Yeah, it's, it was not novel. It was uh, it was actually a standard product for ATK at the time. I think Able Engineering may have pioneered it, mm-hmm. but um, ATK bought them out and they were building the mast. And there's those atom mast, um, you know, their self-building truss structures are very, very complicated. And there's so many moving parts. And to get all of that CTE mismatch to work out all the way to the end and all the adjustments to work out all the way to the end was really a challenge. I've had a really tough time actually finding uh, drawings or renders or descriptions of the mass adjustment mechanism. Could you describe it for us? Oh, let's see. Sure. Uh, okay. Well, we had, we had X, Y, and Z travel. Well, actually we had, it was like a, it was more like an earth theta mechanism. So we had a, we had two platforms that were hinged together at one side and they were triangular in shape. And then the, on the other leg of the triangle, we had this little, it looks like a piston rod from your car, but it was very, very tiny. And it was attached to a little cam and it would drive in a stepper motor and it would just drive the cam so this that one end would pivot up and down and then in the center of the top plate we had this big um, turntable and that was also driven by a cam so it would kind of oscillate back and forth so you could get pretty much any position with those two motions that you wanted to the trick was keeping everything preloaded the hinges because you can't have any there was you know zero slop allowed in the in the mechanism so the hinges were preloaded the turntable was preloaded with like a buckled batten situation and that was i think that was the first time i actually used like a buckled batten which was those are so much fun to work with and so we would take and we built it up on the on the bench and i actually spent like three months in the clean room building and testing this thing and the the motion was so fine we couldn't really like to get a grasp on the motion you had to put a laser on the top platform and shoot it on a wall that was like Mm -hmm. 60 feet away and then you could actually see this thing moving and traveling. Mm. But uh, yeah, it was it's, it was definitely an interesting mechanism. I'm glad it's still up and working. <laughs> I mean, it's it's crazy that like did did they actually specify that it was going to be adjusted once? Like that's that's what yeah, you said. Yeah, that's what right? they told us. Yeah, it was uh, supposed to be a one-time wow. adjustment. And you know, we we consciously made decisions based on that fact that okay, well, this is a one-time adjustment. We don't need ball bearings. We don't. There's a lot of things that we you know you would normally do for something that you want to last that we we didn't think we needed to do. And then uh, Bill Craig from Berkeley, he was a, I think he was the leader at the time came and he's like, well, you know, we have to adjust this thing a lot more often than we thought. <laughs> I'm like, well, more than once is a lot more often. <laughs> <laughs> How did testing that mechanism work out? Like what would you have to do? Um, well, we used theodolites a lot because um, it, you know, like, the adjustment was so fine, but we we basically tested um, all the actuations. We came up with so many, so much 
data and because you had to have like every uh, micro radian you had to have a position point to go with that so it was just mm. so much data that went in and trying to decompile all that data for something that was useful but yeah it was, uh, it was interesting. so were you having to like prove that you could hit each yeah each position or well yeah so you had to have repeat yeah like you know any other mechanism you had to have repeatability requirements accuracy requirements and then you obviously had to meet the the adjustment requirements too. So we, we tested all those things and it, it, it turned out that it was, um, I don't think there was any, any real hiccups with that. It, it took a really long time to get all those measurements done. Um, but we didn't, I don't remember doing a stiffness test on that one for some reason, which you seem that you would think that would be like a real requirement. So maybe it was, but I remember doing that. I remember just being in lab view and, and cranking out numbers and adjustments and oh my <laughs> gosh. <laughs> and so and so it went without a hitch you you designed it and tested it and went yep that's good you didn't have to do any revisions no we didn't have to do any revisions but i think there was one one thing that um there was like a a gotcha thing where we had like one faster was breaking through the edge of a a hole somewhere so we had to redo one part but other uh, than that it was it was actually pretty good like i actually like mechanically damn being damaged yeah yeah not just yeah, it was a whole position was just too close to like a, wow. a well you know the walls are so thin they're like 30 or 40 thousandths of aluminum so you're off and you're you know your true positions just off a little bit it could get really close to an edge and that's what happened um zach in the chat asks uh do these tests have to be done cryogenically or in a thermal vacuum uh or is it just good enough to do it uh, at ambient temperature. I think it's interesting that you have to do it in a clean room, but you have to do it in a cold clean room. Well, that's interesting. Um, we didn't do cryo testing. We didn't do thermovac testing, but we did do, we did cold testing down to, I think minus, I think it was only like minus 60 degrees Celsius, but that's in a, just a test chamber under ambient pressure. Yeah, but we didn't, we didn't do any cryo tests or anything like that. Normally, um, you'd want to do TVAC testing, but we didn't have any materials that were susceptible to vacuum in that design. So we didn't really have that requirement levied on us. How do you confidently decide that you don't need to test something? Uh, does everything come down to just like engineering knowledge or do you ever like sit and think, well, this probably is okay. And I know that that's the case. So I can just eliminate this test. Um, that's a good question. 99% of the time you want to test stuff. The I think the only time that we've justified not testing is if we built the exact same thing previously. You know, if it's a build to print type situation and there was no issues with the previous one and the margins were good for analysis, then sometimes you can levy that to get away without testing. But almost everything gets tested, and that's why that's why these things get so expensive too. I mean, it's it's expensive in the design, but the testing is like very very expensive to do. So we also need to talk about Dart and the roses that are on it, or were on it, I guess. I guess <laughs> Dart is definitively non-existent today. Yeah, that was such a cool program. For real, like it's it's just like Star Wars level fascinating huh. <laughs> to like in the public eye, and then the the actual science that we get out of it is is like totally novel science so you were you were the director on the on the solar array project is that right yeah i was a uh, technical director for the solar arrays for uh deployable space systems yeah did that take you away from the actual engineering were you doing more people management or, or were you still getting plenty of cad time mm -hmm. that was a that was a tough that was a tough program because i was actually the lead mechanical engineer and the technical director we had a very small team 
So I wore both hats like 24 seven until that program was done. But um, yeah, no, I did. I did a lot of the design work and then just handed it off, you know, to get the final, final stuff done. But we had a, we had a good small group of engineers. It was a, it was interesting. Uh, can you, can you give us a high level description of the roses? I feel like we've talked about them a, a fair amount on the show, but uh, they're, they're really fantastic uh, component. Yeah. Rosa was kind of born out of a, uh, I think uh, Brian Spence, the guy that started DSS um, back in the, the mid 2000s, whatever, or early early 2000s, had some experience with um, deployable booms, but they were like stainless booms, I think, for one of the Mars landers. Mm. And he envisioned this, you know, using that technology and a different type of material to deploy a solar array. So basically, you know, the Rosa is a it's a slit tube boom. It's where you like take a carbon tube. And you, or you know, you take any kind of tube structure and you you cut it down the middle, and then you flatten it, and then you roll it up against the you call it we call it reverse rolling. So you roll it up in the in the direction that's harder to roll, and so you're storing all this energy into this boom, and that's what you use instead of a motor to deploy it. A lot of the space mechanisms um, use motors, or or um, some of these a lot of stored energy in springs, and so this the booms for a Rosa. Are basically the just giant springs that like provide the deployment motive force to get the array out. Yeah, and it's uh, it's nice because they're you know it it's a different form factor. Um, it you know it it stows up into like a cylinder, like a carpet roll kind of, if you will, and that tends to fit better in fairings if you're like in the center of the fairing, like on the spacecraft. A lot of times, uh, you know, the SATA is right in the middle of the spacecraft, which is in the middle of the fairing when it gets launched, and so you have this truncated um, circular volume that you have to use for your solar array where there's a flat panel or a flexible array or a, like a rosa type thing and the roses fit in there really really well so they, they take advantage of the space and then they're you know you have a couple release mechanisms and the whole thing autonomously deploys it's very simple when you like break it down into into parts like that yeah it's really clever to have the the spring be the same thing as the the stiff structure there yeah yeah it's, it's actually brilliant to do it like that so of course uh there are the i think there was one or two rosa like experiments i know one of them uh was on iss and i think they like jettisoned it at some point and then they uh, also built the irosas the internet the iss uh rollout solar arrays that are currently still being installed and so, like, th this is a very like rich history for uh, for any given solar array. I don't know if I don't know if there are many solar arrays at all that have been used in in these many different applications. Yeah, no, yeah, that's very true. Our the first one that went on ISS was our actual first flight experiment. We called it the ISS flight experiment by default. But um, that went up, and and we wanted to. We were partnered with AFRL at the time, and we wanted to. Um, be able to test this thing in space and produce power and, and see how everything worked in the environment of space. And so the uh, AFRL contracted with us to, to build this small array. And so it was a complete test article, but it had power. It deployed on autonomously. It also retracted, which was the first retractable array, I think, too. And then mm. um, we had all this mechanism at the base where we could excite the array and get back. You get, um, you know, your frequency 
you could excite the ray and get your your natural frequency of the ray in space. So that was that was really really cool to do that. But um, the reason it got jettisoned, it was supposed to it was supposed to roll up and then get put back in the dragon trunk, I think, and then burn up in the atmosphere. But we had the contingency plan to jettison it if the latch, the roll up latch, didn't latch. And so that was mm. that was why it got jettisoned. It didn't the latch, latch closed. It wouldn't engage when they rolled it up. Um, I think they rolled it up like. They deployed and deployed and uh, rolled it back up. Deployed and stowed it. I'd say like ten times, and it wouldn't latch on the last the last stow. So so they just rolled it back out. And sounds like a bushing should have been a bearing, huh? It sounds like a bushing should have been a bearing. <laughs> do you, Do you know what the failure mode was? Yeah, I think after it got on orbit, um, the latch was no longer aligned to its receiver. Um, I'm not uh-huh. sure exactly why. It, it didn't realign, but it wouldn't align to um, latch back up again. Yeah, so that was kind of a bummer. But everything else on the mission was very successful, so it was it was definitely a win win. You know, being the first flight experiment that we had we had done, and then the iRoser ones, those are yeah, those are still going up, which is which is great. So, I, well, the ISS flight experiment was early days. So I worked on a lot of those designs along with a you know a team of other engineers, and we had a great team of engineers. We got along so well. And then the same thing with ISS. I was on in the beginning doing a bunch of design work, and then got transferred over to Dart when Dart took off, which was pretty cool. Uh, can you talk about the challenges in in scaling these things, right? Because Dart's roses are smaller than the iRoses. Very much smaller. Yeah, Dart was was yeah. almost a was like kind of as wide as the table, but like you know almost thirty feet long. And the iRoses are, you know, like 60 feet long and 15 or 20 feet wide. They're very, very big. And they're, you know, it's it's somewhat scalable. It's it's a really good technology um, because, I mean, everything is deployed. Everything is dependent on your, your boom structure. So if you don't have a, a stiff boom structure, you're not going to have a stiff array. And so we basically take those, the booms and size them based on the the strength and stiffness requirements of the program. And so if it's going to be like a really big array producing a lot of power, you have to upsize the booms. You know, it's like a, a scaling thing, like you said, to uh, to meet those requirements. And we've gotten really good at that. So we have a lot of um, good analysts that are really good at predicting, you know, what, what that's going to, what the stiffness and strength is going to be like really early on before we're like, even at the concept stage. So. Okay. Yeah. My, my question was going to be like, how confident, uh, are we in those characterizations? Cause it, it's a weird, it's a weird structure. Like weird things can happen, uh, when it's placed under stress. I mean, I, uh, I don't want to brag, but I own a couple of tape measures, uh, <laughs> and you know, they're basically sentient. So how, how did, um, how did DSS develop that confidence to be able to, to model the, the strength of these things? Oh, that was a lot of, a lot of testing, a lot of iterations. Um, it depends a lot on the the carbon fire layup of the boom. But we've like our our analysts have developed these really great models to be able to predict very very closely on on what the behavior is going to be. You know, if you hold a tape measure out, it's going to twist and fall over eventually because it gets too long. And so our our analysts know at what point these booms aren't going to work anymore. And so we design, you know, under that with margin. But the predictability is really good now. I think in the beginning it was we were partnered with UCSB on like testing the materials, like down to the constituents and the you know, and then um, just uh, all of our 
in-house testing with the real booms and doing deflection testing and stiffness testing and it's um it allowed them to develop a really really good models to be able to predict what those behaviors are going to be long before we ever build a boom like very early on in the process so what what were the major the major pieces that had to go together to get roses up and working for dart yeah so the major parts of rose are obviously the booms those are the main structure the the imba we call that the blanket we call it imba it's an integrated modular blanket assembly that holds all of your um, power modules all of your solar cells harnessing temperature sensors and then there's the root structure that everything's attached to at the base and that attaches to your spacecraft in one fashion or another and then at the very very tip the other end is a mandrel structure which the blanket rolls around and the booms attached to so it's kind of like a, I mean, lack of a better term, it's like a picture frame with the you know solar ray in the middle. And, and do each of those parts need to change? I'm I'm assuming that that each part needs to change from one application to another. It depends. I think the biggest the biggest change comes from is dictated by the solar cell size. So, like Dart, we use these really small solar cells, are like one and a half inches wide by three inches long, and those roll up pretty easy if you roll in the one and a half inch direction. And so you can roll those around a smaller mandrel. It's basically a faceting, right? But when you go to like an iRosa where we have these these huge solar cells, then the mandrel has to get much, much bigger to get the same type of faceting. So if you try and roll like a really big solar cell on a really small mandrel, it will likely break. And so you have to ratio, right. there has to be that ratio there between the mandrel size and the solar cell size. And that's kind of like the scaling factor. One of the scaling factors. So, like, when when you uh, start working on these Dart solar arrays, uh, are you basically putting together Legos and saying, "Okay, well, we have all these components. Let's get them sized correctly and slap them together." Or, like, what what decisions are you having to make to to get this whole thing working? Um, it's it's not exactly like Legos. We have we have certain requirements that go into the design. There's like a blanket tensioner. There's you know, the mandrel size, the boom size, and the blanket size. And the design decisions um, are a lot based on the mission specifics. If it's a geo mission or if it's a LEO mission, then it requires different types of um, mechanisms and different types of um, finishes and things like that. So the, the mission requirements kind of dictate which direction you want to go. But we've built enough of them now that we're doing more of a standardization process. So we're not everything is like completely custom. It might be taking like a current design and tweaking it a little bit to make it bigger or smaller. But um, we're definitely getting more in that mindset on let's, let's not make everything absolutely custom. Let's, you know, let's treat a little bit more like Legos if we can and uh, make sure, you know, that we're, we're taking advantage of the work that we've already done in the past. And, you know, when we do that, it, it makes the timeline much, much shorter to produce these and, and manufacture them. And, um, you know, we're set up for, for testing all those different um, mechanism things, mechanisms and things already. But sometimes we'll get a customer that has specific requirements and then you have to come up with all new test procedures and all new designs. And But generally, we're trying to be, a, you know, standardize a little bit more. And I think that's the key to any any manufacturing company or any any company that's producing similar products. So given that we've been trying to 
and I guess you're right by we, I mean humanity, has been deploying things to different extents for as long as we've been having spacecraft on orbit. What was, is it, was there a particular piece of technology uh, that really lies at the root that made these sort of rollout arrays possible? Or was it the idea like you were talking about with the person trying to repurpose it from somewhere else and bring it to solar uh, cell technology? Yeah, I think it was more the idea than anything else. Um, it's like taking something from like the space industry that's known to work, and then you like apply that to like another another industry like automotive or something like that more or less mm. but it's um it wasn't like a new technology because they've been doing like reverse rule booms for a long time and there's also been things called stem deployers which a stem deployer has like a, a mandrel at the root and then it just deploys out like a stainless steel or carbon fiber boom that turns into a tube as you deploy it out so it's wound up flat and it deploys out and turns into a tube at the end um, but that stuff has been around for a long time i think the I, the novel thing here was flipping that around looking at it from a different perspective and then using the boom as the deployer and then letting the boom like fully close out which forms a tube when it's deployed versus like a stem deployer which still has a flat section on the mandrel and it, it never forms a full tube at the root so like the roses will there'll be a full tube at the at the mandrel end and at the root end. But I think it's like, you know, just taking that technology that was already there uh, with a fresh set of eyes and, and you know, adapting it really. And it turned out to be a really, really great way to do it. It's kind of incredible to think about with however all the people like looking at this sort of, you know, in this industry that are coming up with ideas that you can still have something that is like just innovative and yeah. uses existing technology and can be purposed in now more than one way right between both dart and the iss yeah yeah that's yeah i think the whole industry is that way we're actually trying to develop a, a continuous rotary viscous damper that's based on stuff like that for space industry so we're trying to get that on mm. out on the market pretty soon got our, our patents applied for and should be we should hear this month i think because it's been a while but uh yeah that's i think the industry is like built on that you know, taking taking something, making it better, looking at it from a different perspective and just seeing if you can apply it to a different area. So to what extent, though, with the ROSAs, uh, to what extent did the solar cell technology have to evolve? Did that affect uh, how quickly this was developed? Because I don't know if like this were like 20 years ago, if such a thing would even be possible. I don't know much about like solar cell technology, but was that a component? Um, that's a good question because solar cell, solar cell technology changes nearly on a daily basis. They're always trying to you know, push the limit a little bit more. But I don't think that really would have affected the roses because the original solar cell technology were, we call them two cell per wafers. And so they have a wave, a silicon wafer and they make two solar cell, two, they have a round silicon wafer and they make two solar cells out of that by cutting it up. And so the solar cell size was always been pretty small. It's always been like an inch and a half by three and a half. And so that was like the ideal starting point for a rosa because you could roll those up on a really small mandrel. I think the problem now is our companies are doing these one cell per wafers where that whole wafer, that whole four inch wafer is now one solar cell. And now you have to take that and roll it up on a mandrel, which, you know, that aspect ratio really grows. And so if you go from like a five and a half inch mandrel to a 12 inch mandrel. So it's driving, um, <laughs> it's driving, you know, changes for sure. But I think, uh, in the beginning, Rosa still would work with the original solar cells. All right. So uh, just to wrap up our penultimate question, we have two left for you, but the second to last is where would you like to be found on the internet? Yeah. So Rolay.com would be a great spot. And in uh, Artemis 
Space.com would be another great spot. Yeah, so Rolaid, um, I guess I'm a, kind of like a surreal entrepreneur a little bit, but I started a company called Rolaid to build uh, rotation fixtures for the space industry. And so um, we started, I, it actually all started with Dart. So I was going to do those for the Dart program myself. That didn't work out, but then I came back and uh, we ended up um, designing and building them for another program. And I think we've sold probably 14 of them so far. And they basically are, are shop shop aids that, you know, you put your spacecraft on or your solar panel on and you can rotate it to work on it. And then it rolls around the clean room. And then um, ours uh, standard equipment come with like leveling jacks and all this other stuff. And, and now we have a, uh, we have a customer that wants it all automated. So we're, we're trading out stepper motors and brushless DC motors and controls and things like that. So that's been a really, really challenging and fun, uh, fun business to be in. It's been good. It's a, it's R O L L A I D E dot com, like a shop aid that rolls around. So roll aid. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So our, that was our, our penultimate question. Our final question, uh, is less of a question, more of a mini game show called overrated or underrated. Um, so I've got a list, uh, I've got a quick fire list of products or concepts, and we would like you to tell us if the world, not yourself, but if the world sees too much value in them, too little value in them, or in rare cases, correctly values them. Are you ready? Okay, we'll try this out. All right. So the first one, uh, overrated or underrated, the Star Wars Star Trek dichotomy. Oh, I think that's underrated. <laughs> All right, overrated or underrated uh free to use CAD programs. Oh, definitely underrated. Uh overrated or underrated slap bracelets. Don't know if I have an opinion on those. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and you think I would with the Rosa cuz they're very similar. Uh I I would say probably just right. Uh overrated or underrated stepper motors. I would say overrated. Overrated or underrated liquid cheese. Definitely overrated. <laughs> French would agree. He says quietly. Yeah, cheese, cheese from a can just doesn't. Uh, mm. That shouldn't be part of humanity. <laughs> Even when frozen and rolled out into a sheet, come on. <laughs> well, this this has been the most fun I've had in uh, in a while doing an interview, and I I love doing interviews like this. So thank you so much for uh, carving some time out of your very busy roll aid schedule. <laughs> Well, thank you guys. I really appreciate it. I'm glad we could finally connect. And it, this was a blast for me too. I totally appreciate it. And Good. I'm glad. your podcast is like the only podcast I listen to. So, oh, wow. oh thank you. It's, you guys have a, you guys do a great job. Awesome. Let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. We have six winners: Asukar, Hydrax, Cycle, HZ Science, Henry, and the Greek. They all get the bonus points too. So they all got the thrust of the clue, right? Which was uh, 20 million leagues above the sea level. I think that's how you said it last week, Dennis, mm -hmm. which is a good clue. I very much like this one. So what is the event that's associated with it? Thank you. Yeah, good job, everybody. Uh, so this event was March 9th, 2008, and it was the launch of the first automated transfer vehicle, ATV-1, a.k.a. Jules Verne. And so all these vehicles were named after people, and this first one was named after Jules Verne. And uh, right there, uh, I guess to kind of describe the payload, I mean, the clue is 
pretty straightforward at that point. Um, Jules Verne had written 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and so this was a play on uh, the amount of the, the distance that ATV-1 traveled uh, on orbit when it spent months up there. And uh, I think, uh, David, you and I both calculated to be somewhere in the ballpark of 18 million leagues, but uh, we can round that up to an even 20 since I'm sure there's some subtleties. And so this is a uh, European uh, spacecraft, uh, but also uh, with uh, a lot of uh, Russian support, in particular Energia was involved and uh, I believe with the uh, the engines uh, specifically. Before you get too far, can I talk about the clue a little more? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, so real quick, like I think that this is a popular enough like gotcha kind of fact that everybody will know it, but like 20,000 leagues isn't a depth. It's a horizontal distance traveled, right? Um, mm. And so um, got to get that out of the way. And then one of my... <laughs> One of my favorite things is that Asukar included so well so we we calculated this by hand and Asukar calculated it using Wolfram Alpha and linked their Wolfram Alpha calculation. Um and like I, I don't know why we didn't think to use Wolfram Alpha, but like it's so brilliant because it's like twenty million leagues mm-hmm. over the fifth of September two thousand eight to the twenty ninth of September two thousand eight over ninety one point three four minutes, which is orbital times Earth radius plus three hundred and thirty five kilometers in altitude times two times pi. And so um by doing a ratio, right, twenty million leagues over this actual distance traveled, uh they came out with uh one point oh three eight three and a perfect match would be one. So like According to Asuka, we were very, very, very close. Um, according to Cy Kyle, uh, we weren't that close because Cy Kyle came out with, uh, 25.2 million leagues. Um, and like, I just love that it's a vague enough question that everybody gets all these mm-hmm. different answers. It just is lovely. So thank you, Ben, for, for, for one, uh, that clarification that the, the leagues isn't. Yeah. That I think everybody twenty thousand leagues isn't depth because I, I didn't know that David had to explain that to me oh, okay. that it was the actual distance traveled. Um, yeah, so up until uh, last week, I was under that uh, misunderstanding as well. But also, yeah, this was there, there were a lot of fun answers where people really kind of got into the. Uh, the values, but yeah, that's how you spot a good clue. So yeah, and so Jules Verne, the author of uh, of that uh, work, um, yeah. Uh, so the uh, ATV one, Jules Verne, launched on an Ariane five ES vehicle, which doesn't fly anymore. Um, right, pretty soon, no Ariane fives are going to fly anymore. But uh, uh, as far as the payload goes, uh, this being a cargo vehicle to the ISS, so it's going to include food. It's going to include uh, all sorts of sundries and goodies for the astronauts, and it also has a lot of propellant. I'll talk about that later, which is really cool, how it's able to deliver the propellant to the station. And um, But among the things for this historic uh, launch, this is the you know uh, Europeans' cargo vehicle to the station, uh, is that it included an original 19th century luxury edition of De la Terre a la Lune, or From the Earth to the Moon. Mind um, fuel. Right, uh, <laughs> and so uh, I think there were some other manuscripts and kind of things that they included on board to to make it a kind of historic, you know, maiden flight of the spacecraft uh, that it was. What was cool when they got on orbit was that they had a few days on on orbit to just verify the systems, uh, make sure that there was no risk or that there was very limited risk of them actually uh, slamming into the station inadvertently. This was a uncrewed vehicle that was going to be doing some docking to the ISS. So we want to make sure that works right and. 
and also being the the first uh, ATV, they actually spent three weeks before they even approached the station. So this launch right was March 9th of 2008, but it didn't dock until April 3rd. And again, uh, even though uh, right, I mentioned Energia was involved with the uh, the propulsion system, they uh, also must have to some extent been involved with the well the docking system um, as well, uh, maybe or, or a different Russian company was because it docked to Zvezda. So it docked at the uh, the far aft end of the station, and so that meant that it had to have the type of uh, probe and drogue system that a uh, a, a Progress or a Soyuz uses. And so, uh, yeah, in any event, it made it there uh, in in one piece, which was good. Uh, the three week shakedown was also uh, smart to plan that because there was a small glitch with one of the uh, uh, propulsion drive electronics units. So basically, a quarter of the thrusters uh, were. Uh, had lost control, uh, or they couldn't uh, fire them. And uh, it was that classic uh, cycling power or uh, AKA turning it off and turning it back on that works for so many things in electronics. And uh, they did that and that solved the problem. And uh, once they uh, once it docked, they saw that some thermal blankets had become partially detached. And they think that there was some, uh, some basically air bubbles uh, that weren't able to be vented underneath the blankets. And so once they got to vacuum, they kind of wanted to go out and that resulted in some of the thermal blankets coming loose but not a, not a problem uh, at all for the vehicle and they were able to solve it by poking more holes in there and improving venting in that way so uh, once it got to orbit over its uh, uh, five-ish month stay it boosted the ISS four times which is pretty cool that's a good feature to have uh, it transferred propellant to the station which I thought was really cool that it wasn't the propellant that it used for reboosting or for its own maneuvers so it used hypergols in each way uh, and uh, hydrazine and NTO nitrogen tetroxide but for reboosting, it specifically uses MMH and NTO, while the prop that it brought to the station was UDMH and NTO. And so uh, I thought that was nice that it's just bringing propellant specifically to give to the station by conveying it through so uh, through Zvezda. Um, and this also goes back to last week or two weeks ago when we were talking about, uh, you know, we have done fuel propellant or we have done propellant transfers uh, in orbit before, but we haven't done it with cryogenics. And so that's kind of the big thing about, uh, yeah, this was just last week. We were talking about Starship potentially being used as a fuel depot, which is a really cool idea. In addition to uh, bringing all these goodies to the uh, ISS, it also was a very quiet and rather spacious module. I'll talk about the dimensions uh, a bit later, but it was used as a shower, quote unquote, right? Uh, basically the hygiene room that was, you know, nice to go in there. And uh, it served as a bedroom for some of the astronauts because uh, you can get in a nice quiet space there. And uh, Yi So Young, who was the uh, uh, Korean astronaut, she used it as a lab during her uh, stay uh, on orbit. And so um, that's, yeah, pretty cool. Uh, had some good functions there. And uh, at the end of the mission, uh, basically, the idea was for it to uh, detach and go and burn up in the atmosphere. And it ultimately took two and a half tons of waste with it. Um, and so part of that detaching and, uh, you know, ending its uh, mission involved uh, checking communications with uh, both Tedris as well as ESA's Artemis system. Have you guys heard of Artemis in this context? ESA's Artemis? So. Yes. Mm, nope. Apparently, so this stands for Advanced Relay and Technology Mission. Um, and so you can take some of the letters from, I mean, the advanced relay, it gets you the R and then the T comes from technology and the MIS and mission gets you the R to miss. And uh, basically this was a 
Tedris-like uh, satellite that was put up in a geo and was used. Uh, it's, it's no longer alive. It's been moved to a graveyard orbit, but it was used basically to be the tracking and data relay satellite for Europe before they came up with their own Idris, uh, European data relay satellites, which are working to this day. And so that makes at least three different Artemises for spacecraft. I'm sure there's more, but there's obviously the lunar Artemis, there was this Artemis, and then there were the Artemis spacecraft. That was like a whole bunch of Themis ones that were launched around the moon. We did a twist on that back in the day. So in any event, you know, you kind of clean things up. You, you take out the inner module air hose that, you know, you, you always are pulling those through these modules uh, when people uh, docked, uh, when spacecraft docked to the station. Um, you close the hatch, you do your leak checks, uh, and then you actually pump some of the waste fluid into the uh, ATV uh, in addition to just, you know, any waste that's just raw, like, you know, that's bagged, I guess, and you can toss in there. And so you need to uh, account for the center of mass of the uh, of the vehicle to get it to hit its proper trajectory uh, on deorbiting, which is, I thought, a nice thing to have to consider. Uh, another thing that I thought was pretty fun, in addition to learning about Artemis, uh, was that the ISS uh, and the type of attitudes that it goes into. So uh, beforehand, right, remember, this ATV can boost the ISS around. And so uh, the ISS has moved into the local vertical, local horizontal attitude before departing. And this is the one that kind of, this is an attitude that sort of makes intuitive sense. The imagine that the earth is right the, the ground beneath you. And so you have your spacecraft parallel to it. It's not tipped up or down or anything and it's the long axis, right? The 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 pressurized inhabited axis axis of the station um uh, I guess node two is at the front and then Zvezda is at the rear. And so it would do that. And then two minutes before undocking, it would go into free drift. So that way there's no, uh, when, when the ATV undocks, it can move away and there's not any potential torques uh, acting on it. And then the ISS goes back into the torque equilibrium attitude or TEA. Evidently, this attitude is a way to balance the external torques on the station as much as possible to try to zero it out so you don't have to do as much station keeping as you need to otherwise. Right, The big ones you're going to have is gravity gradient, uh, stabilization wanting to have the station pulled into that attitude. Uh, and then you also do have some uh, aerodynamic forces on there, right? The station is gigantic and there is uh, as thin an atmosphere up there. Um, that acting over such a, a wide cross-section of vehicle plowing through it uh, is actually enough to go and uh, induce a torque. And so you want to actually have those balance. And so the station doesn't just sit in local vertical, local horizontal all the time, but rather this... Uh, torque equilibrium attitude instead. And, and, and just uh, another fun quick aside is that uh, early station, uh, early ideas for uh, the space station, uh, I think it was probably freedom at this point, was to uh, take advantage of gravity gradient stabilization and have it be basically its long axis aimed away from Earth. And so that was called tomahawk, uh, like the tomahawk configuration or attitude for the station. And so that's a fun thing to go and Google. But when you do it that way, you don't have the ability to go and point so many uh, instruments <laughs> towards the Earth or directly away from the Earth because most of your axis is, you know, uh, not aimed at the Earth. Most of the surface area, I guess, of your station isn't aimed at the Earth or aimed at black space if you uh, have it in that uh, attitude. And so that's why that ultimately Tomahawk version wasn't chosen. And then, yeah, so it, you know, it, it left the station. It, it took some time to do some phasing and get into the proper deorbit attitude and then went and burned up over uh, the Pacific. And they actually sent a couple of uh, a couple of aircraft to go and view it. And so there's some really, really be beautiful footage of it burning up in the atmosphere, including some really big 
kind of pops um, as the spacecraft is uh, basically getting torn apart. Now, the spacecraft itself, it's a cylinder, 10.3 uh, by 4.5 meters uh, in length and diameter, and it consists of two modules, really. Uh, there's the uh, the ATV service module, and then there's the pressurized, or mostly pressurized, integrated cargo carrier. And so that cargo carrier, as you can imagine, is where the cargo is and the service module, as you can imagine, is where the avionics and propulsion system lie. What's neat about this, and David uh, and Ben, we had talked before the show about this, uh, is that this ATV, even though it's an uncrewed vehicle, it's actually crew rated, just like Cygnus is crew rated, which I verified before the show. And I believe that was uh, something that I think you had talked about uh, at some point last year how Cygnus was a crewed, yeah. crew-rated vehicle, even though you know you don't put meat bags inside it and then launch it, and so uh, you still have it though meet those more rigorous standards of being crew-rated. And so uh, I guess a, a corollary we could take away from that is that you don't need to actually have the uh, an escape system. Uh, installed for it to be crew rated because the ATV didn't have that, but uh, it, I guess it met the other standards. And so, um, as for the as for the integrated cargo car carrier, uh, that was sixty percent of the total ATV. So sixty percent of the cylinder is this uh, pressurized section. It's quite spacious when you see the astronauts inside there, and ninety percent of this part is pressurized and you can kind of comfortably have two people in there and it had eight standard racks like you would see in the station and so that's where you pile in a lot of stuff and it was based on the multi-purpose logistics modules if you'd seen that um, which you know similarly would have racks all around the walls and then the other 10% held 22 spherical tanks of different sizes and those tanks would have the propellant that was specifically for the station as well as oxygen and nitrogen um, which is helpful for replenishing the gases that are lost on orbit. And ultimately all in you could get seven and a half tons of cargo uh, uh, from uh, one of these AT ATVs and uh, yeah most of it in the form of propellant but again all the other goodies as well. And then the uh, the the service module uh, had the avionics bay, um, which was like a ring of electronics sitting in the upper part of the service module, and it had four solar arrays, so it made a nice X, but not like a equally spaced cross kind of X, more like a X-wing fighter kind of X, a little squished in one direction, and. Um, and then the propulsion system at the base of the entire spacecraft uh, consisted of four main engines, uh, each capable of 490 newtons thrust, uh, or equivalently 110 pounds force, and then had 28 attitude control thrusters that were arranged in a bunch of clusters. And so one of those, uh, you know, a quarter of them was rendered uh, uh, inoperable by that glitch earlier on. And uh, yeah. And so uh, the the vehicle uh, would actively dock, um, right, being able to show up to the rear end of Svezda where there isn't an arm or anything to grab it. And so uh, it would, you know, be able to, in principle, dock to a dormant and uncrewed ISS, although uh, obviously we never encountered that kind of situation. And so, yeah, so that was the ATV-1 Jules Verne mission. And so just a little denouement uh, to take us out was uh, the idea for variations and future plans. They had some big ideas for these. Um, they planned seven of them, but in reality, only five of them flew, with the last one, uh, Georges Lemaitre, uh, docking in the summer of 2014 and deorbiting in February of 2015. But as far as building on the ATV, one of the successor ideas ultimately led to the European service module. 
uh, for Artemis. And so this this ESM that uh, you're hearing about currently in the news ultimately has a history that traces back to the ATV. I'm not going to talk too much about that because that could be a fun twist if at some point. Um, and then they even wanted to, well, they've got this uh, human-rated uh, vehicle, so why not uh, replace the ICC, the cargo portion that's uh, a giant cylinder, uh, and replace it with a capsule. And that way you can have two-way cargo and then maybe someday in the future actually have humans on board. And so that uh, having cargo uh, was the cargo access and return vehicle or CARV. And then actually having humans on board would be the uh, crew space transportation system or CSTS. And then finally, uh, there was another concept. I don't know how seriously it was explored or how far they ever got with it, but the idea would be to chain together a few of these and come up with the mini space station or MSS. And so uh, there's a cool little graphic of a couple of them chained together and then a Soyuz uh, actually docking to the rear of the uh, uh, ATV, the, the rear ATV vehicle. And so, yeah, so that's, that's your vehicle. Uh, pretty cool. Uh, did a lot of boosting, carried a lot of cargo, and all five missions were able to get there uh, and reach station in one piece. There was no uh, catastrophic failures for them. And that is this week in spaceflight history. All right, cool. All right, that was a good twist. If I like the ATV, actually. You made me like it even more. So, And I like Jules Verne. That's a cool name for a very first one. Um, I looked it up. They, I was trying to find the a photo of the actual uh, De La Terre a la Lune that they sent up and I wasn't able to find a good photo of it, but they also sent up two of his handwritten manuscripts. And so like, obviously now, did they get those back? Yeah, they were on loan from a museum. I don't know when they came back, but I know one thing for sure. They did not come back uh, on ATV, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> Jules Verne would have wanted it this way. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody's going to burn my written works, I would rather it be coming back through the atmosphere. So next week, our date range for our clue is the 14th of March through the 20th. And Ben, do you have a clue for us? Yes, I do. Uh, next week in 1986, the clue is slap a Renaissance painter. So most likely he'll be dead by then. All right. Well, <laughs> yeah, re- <laughs> do you have any idea what that clue is in reference to? I'm not talking about slapping a corpse. <laughs> like I am willing to go that far. <laughs> That's not what I'm talking about. If you have any idea what that clue is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week, SF, and good luck. Good luck, everybody. All right, so let's do upcoming spaceflight events. We got six of them, five of them launches, so lots of launches this week. Ben, what is the first? Yeah, first one sounds really macabre. Uh, it is farewell remarks by NASA's SpaceX Crew 5 <laughs> on, on NASA TV. That's how they, they put it. So I, I'm assuming it's just like before the, the hatch closing ceremony, whatever. Uh, so that's Mancasado, uh, Wakata, and Kakina coming home. Um, the live stream will be on NASA TV on Wednesday, March 8th, starting at 11.35 a.m. Eastern Time. And also on March 8th, we have our first launch of the week, which is Terran 1's maiden flight, hopefully. Uh, good luck, have fun. And so this is Relativity Space's vehicle, uh, potentially, you know, breaking a couple or doing a few firsts, right? This would be the first, the, I guess, the most 3D printed rocket <laughs> to ever make orbit, uh, as well as the first Methalox one. So that's kind of, I think that ladder is, is pretty exciting. 
And so again, this is uh, Wednesday, March 8th, with a window at 1800 UTC to 2100 UTC, uh, launching out of the Cape at Launch Complex 16. And so good luck to Relativity. And then on the 9th, we have a Falcon 9 Block 5 with the launch of OneWeb 17. So this one should have went up on the 1st. It was uh, delayed. Hopefully, we'll be seeing it launch this time. And this this one's going into a polar orbit, actually, launching from Cape Canaveral, though, uh, from Slick 40. So that's interesting. Um, the uh, liftoff time is it? 1905 UTC. So yeah, check that one out. It'll be interesting to see. I guess they're going to do a dog leg maneuver and get it to pull the orbit. Uh, after that is a Long March 4C flying an unknown payload. Um, this is just based on NOTAMs, so don't, uh, don't count your ducklings before they hatch. The NOTAM for that runs on Thursday, March 9th from 2233 hours UTC to 2317 hours UTC. And then on March 12th, we have a classified mission from the Russian Ministry of Defense and Russian Intelligence Agency. And so this is a Proton M with a Breeze M upper stage uh, that will be taking what is believed to be an Olymp K uh, satellite, uh, number two, or uh, also known as a Luch uh, satellite. And so these are uh, data relay satellites. And so this goes up to Geo and basically. Uh, serves as a communication relay for orbital assets. And so, uh, again, that is Sunday, March 12th, uh, with uh, a launch instantaneous at 2212 UTC. Uh, again, heading to GEO. And uh, it'll be launching from Baikonur uh, in Kazakhstan. And then lastly, we have another Falcon 9 Block 5 with Dragon Cargo Resupply Mission 2, um, or SpaceX 27, or SPX 27, uh, I guess is how they call it. And so the launch time for that is on March 15th um, at 2425 UTC, launching from Kennedy Space Center from Launch Complex 39A. So check that out. Just another resupply mission on a Falcon 9 Block 5, since they're launching at a very good cadence so far this year, from what I read. Someone commented they're... (laughs) getting up to what yeah, one on average it's like every two days yeah I, well, I think it's like four days maybe but i thought four i thought it four and change yeah. they're closing in on their cadence like enough to get them to 100 launches this year i think one launch every four days one hour and 36 minutes so far this year mm-hmm. which puts them on track for 92 launches if they don't pick up the cadence and like that's that's pretty cool. All right, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right, which means it's time to do up the show, and we would like to thank Ron Jiggies and Tim Don for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Chris, aka Stygarfield, Deathkin, Delta V, The Greek, Zach, Breaking Taps, Mike, Colin, Calvin, Stu, Jonesy, Chubby, and Ponji for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com/support for our Patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcasts on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.